When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, Tales from the Tour Bus, where the podcast about how and why popular music happens takes a break to talk about our favorite animated music history show from Mike Judge with hosts Nate Wilcox and Justin Bankston. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. You can now follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast, and we'd love to hear what you think, so don't be shy about tweeting at us or commenting on our website. This week, Nate and Justin talk about the second episode of Tales from the Tour Bus featuring the problematic Jerry Lee Lewis. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome back to Let It Roll. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by my partner in crime, Justin Bankston, for a special series sharing my obsession with Mike Judge's Tales from the Tour Bus series. So, Justin, you cruelly pointed out the irony of doing a hour-long podcast about a half-hour show last time we chatted. <laughs> it was actually someone put up a meme that was talking about podcasters that do that. I was like, that's us. Yes, yes, the pain of recognition. Uh, they're on to us. Uh, <laughs> they got us. But considering that I've watched this show, this series, I don't know, 15, 20 times through, uh, you know, whatever. I, I've been obsessed with this thing, and I'm glad uh, I have, have you to share it with, and hopefully the audience will enjoy uh, sharing it with us as well. But now we're coming to the problematic second episode because we're talking about the problematic Jerry Lee Lewis Oh man, I caught feelings, Nate. I caught feelings. <laughs> I, I hadn't thought about Jerry Lee in a long time, and it turns out I have some strong negative feelings about this motherfucker. It's it's a very hard uh, to like him, but his his musical power is undeniable, especially if you see footage of his '50s performances or listen to his live at the Star Club performance. But it's oh, yeah, that- he's bad. I mean, he can sing his ass off for sure. Yeah, and play like a motherfucker, um, and and do anything. But yeah, there's there's very little reason to like the guy. Like this is a the I'm 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 skipping ahead then because this is kind of like the last question we ask because you know do, <laughs> do you like the main character? And it's it's I think you can respect Jerry Lee Lewis as a talent and uh, respect him as a force of nature. I mean, the guy is still alive. He's like the last, he and Little Richard are the last of the original rock and rollers left. He and, is, but I would, I would say right there, 
the thing about Jerry Lee Lewis is that he's half a little Richard, maybe on a good day. I mean, you know, we could argue. I, I heard a story about Lemmy and, and somebody uh, uh, getting into a, nearly a fist fight arguing about that uh, that debate. I don't know which. I think uh, Lemmy was on the Little Richard side as well. But you know, it, it's it's hard to say. I think Little Richard had a little bit more time to explore his his unbridled rock and roll side before he got religion and and fell off the map. Um, and Little Richard never really put together a second act, whereas. I would give Jerry Lee points just from purely a musical accomplishment basis for the whole country uh, chapter of his career in the late sixties and early seventies that he, he did add to his body of work and, and show a second dimension. But, you know, one thing that's frustrating about the first era of rock and roll to me is that none of them answered the question of what do you do next? You know, I mean, whether it was Elvis being drafted or, Buddy Holly's plane crash, Eddie Cochran's car crash. None of them really had a chance to follow up on their original rock and roll uh, recordings. I guess Ray Charles, you know, who's probably more soul than than R and B than rock and roll. Although I find those distinctions kind of artificial. He did he did have an extended career, and, and but you know, Jerry Lee and Little Richard to me are both sort of punk in that they they made their statement they codified what they were about and then we never got to see what they would have done um had they been allowed to continue or chosen to continue in little richard's case but go on so so anything else about jay lee you want to get out of the way before we start on the episode well i do agree that like in general a lot of the rock and rollers you know they flamed out in sort of in the way that everyone expected rock and roll would flame out. Uh, but rock and roll kept going and just these original guys being first isn't always best personally. And, uh, you know, these guys got ground up in it and not very few of them, as you pointed out, made any longevity out of it. And Jerry Lee certainly, you know, managed to sort of trade on his vibe, you know, to go on and, and continue to be a, a entertainer. But, uh, yeah, there's just, there's just so much about the guy that is, uh, really tough, really tough to swallow. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's everything your mother warned you about with rock and roll. And, and a lot of it to me is he's the personification of the other, the white other, the redneck, the, the, the swamps, incest you know it's it's all right there and jerry lee's story violence drugs and yeah alcohol. and getting away with it all that's the other thing that is maddening about it is like you think of it as sort of like being rock and roll or even sort of proto-punk rock guys he doesn't give a shit uh you know and he does all this crazy stuff but that's just only because he's part of this good old boy sort of context where you can do whatever you want you know what I mean? If you got a little money, especially, and a hundred first cousins in the county, you're you're made, and you can be as much of a dickhead as you want. And it there's nothing punk rock about it. It's just a guy be getting away with being a good old boy, and it it grates on me. I I can definitely understand that. But let's talk about the the episode a little bit. And I think I think. Mike Judge is, is very clear. You know, he, he, he addresses this in his introduction. 
a lot of people have a lot of reason not to like Jay Lee, but let's try to look at the positive side. So this is unabashedly Absolutely. an apology for for Jay Lee Lewis, um, <laughs> you know, and and as such, uh, it delivers. But one thing that that you know, this is part of the country music series. But I sort of wonder they don't really talk about the country years with Jerry Lee very much. They only play one song they from don't. his from his country period. And they pretty much just tell his story in order. Um, but I got to say, it's very entertaining television. It's compelling. Oh, absolutely. It's just as great as all the other episodes, though it is. I, I totally was confused about why. Like every, the whole rest of the first season is all of a piece. And then you got Jerry Lee and it's like really ancillarily connected. And I think probably what happened is he got a load of tarp. and was like, I got to put this guy on a show. I, I I suspect that as well because um, Morris Tarp Tarrant, who was a drummer for Jerry Lee from 1961 till 1973, I believe when when he says uh, he got got caught on that robbery charge, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know, and with somebody like Tarp, it it it's sort of a sociopathic hallmark to 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 view things like that as as something that happens to you rather than a consequence of what you've done not to judge tarp in that because i really don't know anything about this case but that that to me is just a telltale uh that that tarp's not taking responsibility for his actions either and you can see why he yeah. fit in but he is a great interview he's fascinating to listen to just the sound of his voice is really interesting and compelling um yeah and he's got that deadpan humor that that you see a lot in this first, uh, the whole first season. Uh, a lot of these guys have it, but Tarp is just—you got it all the way to the bone. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 um, so the basic plot summary is is the tale of Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, this prodigious talent from nowhere who comes to Memphis, explodes on the world uh, with two enormous hit records, is immediately undone by his decision to bigamously marry his first cousin once removed who was 13 at the time so you know everything people feared about white southerners jerry lee embodied um yeah especially the the ones who'd gone bad who'd who'd quit the church to go rock and roll in yeah yeah and and that is the fundamental uh conflict in jerry lee's head is that you know this is a kid who grew up i mean his cousin was jimmy swaggart another cousin was mickey gilly this is a kid who grew up deep in the pentecostal church and you know there's a recording of him and sam phillips the legendary sun studios producer right before he recorded great balls of fire debating uh you know whether you can play rock and roll and be saved and this is somebody jerry lee who was raised believing in hell in a real visceral way and, um, you know, you got to give him, I think, some, I don't want to say you got to give him credit for, for struggling with this, these demons, because if he really believed that, I mean, he hasn't really made any effort to uh, follow the Christian path. <laughs> you know, he's, he's pretty much been damned <laughs> uh, by his own admission his whole life. Um, you know, people can't help the context that they they're born into that they can only control their actions and and that's the thing is Jerry Lee most of his troubles have been self-inflicted but one thing I did notice about this episode especially we'll talk about uh, other episodes later on is this is probably the most chronological and straightforward narrative in the whole series 
Yeah. And, and, and they, they just tell that story and they really kind of brush over. I mean, the, the, the reason for having Jerry Lee in a series about country music, I mean, because this guy made seriously great country music albums. He had a long series of hits. There's a five to 10 year period where he was a real player on the country charts. And so, you know, there's legit reasons why people are pissed at, for example, that he's not in the country music hall of fame, but this show is really more about the rock and roll years and sort of mentions the country comeback in passing. And they do, they do talk about the fall you know, a lot. And they talk about the comeback or at least the beginning of the comeback. And that's where TARP came in. You know, I mean, when TARP came, joined up with them in 61, he was still in exile essentially from the 1958 debacles. And you do have to hand it to him. I mean, he worked to come back and, and, and he was constantly touring and touring on the Chitlin circuit. I thought it was also interesting that they point that out, that his, audience that stuck with him was was african-american and that he was playing the the black clubs when nobody else would have him and so bloody bucket yeah the 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 bloody bucket exactly and there's a great story they tell about you know driving on a flat tire all the way to oklahoma city from fort worth as fast as humanly possible and setting the car on fire (laughs) but we made the damn show so let's talk about the other people to interview i mean i think another reason to do this is that they had a lot of great sources. They had Sam Phillips, his son, Jerry. Uh, they had Myra Lewis Williams, who was the infamous child bride. And she's one of the most compelling and interesting people on the show. Yeah, she seems like she came out with her head on straight somehow. Absolutely. And, and like she says herself, you know, I was 13, he was 22 and I was the thinking adult in that relationship, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, but they do gloss over the reality of that marriage because it was marred by domestic violence. Uh, they yeah. lost a son in a swimming pool. And, um, you know, so it was a tragic, very difficult marriage for both of them. But the fact that she can still um, talk about Jerry Lee and in, in the world, I mean, that she would, you know, a lot of people that have been through that would not agree to participate in something like this. So yeah. it seems like... Um, you know, and, and there's others, you know, his sister talks, uh, I think, to his cousin, the bass player, who's Myra's father, and Jerry Lee's cousin and father-in-law. Uh, and, and then uh, Jane Van Eaton, his original drummer, Rusty Brown, a, a brother-in-law and drummer, said that the, there's definitely an atmosphere of family around Jerry Lee Lewis. And like you said, that's that's a good and bad because his family has definitely enabled his, his behavior. Yeah. And, uh, for sure. And I mean, I, you know, I hate to talk bad about a bass player, but I mean, JW Brown, just like, he doesn't do a very good job of defending himself, you know, as far as like how he handled finding out that his cousin had secretly married his 13 year old daughter. You know, it's like, that's some craven shit, man. Like you, you, you can't let that stand. You know, there's a story in my family where my, grandmother, I won't tell you which one, ran off and got married when she was 16. My great-grandmother went and drug her home by the ear and got that marriage annulled. And that's what you did. Yeah, and 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 judges explicit that this was a financial decision, essentially. I mean, the, the fame and money and the opportunity that was happening with Jerry Lee's career at that point was big enough that yeah. 
they were willing to paper over that. And, and, you know, I'm not in a position to judge uh, their decisions, but it, you, you'd like to think that if you were in the position of finding out that your cousin had run off and bigamously married your 13-year-old daughter, that you would do more than talk a little bit of shit and then acclimate, and acclimate yourself to it and still be playing in the guy's band. Keep um, playing in the band, yeah. I mean, that's... Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh, and you know they don't talk about it much, but but I guess I do. Jerry Lee's little sister talks about how they they got the money to send him to Memphis by you know harvesting every chicken egg they had uh, and, and and pulling all the family money to send him up there and and yeah, thirty three the, dozen eggs. Yeah, the whole reality of how did Jerry Lee even become a piano virtuoso when he's coming out of this kind of poverty. I mean, his father scraped up money he didn't have to buy Jerry Lee a piano. And Jerry Lee was, while everybody else is in the fields, they don't talk about this in the show, but I've read some other biographies, while everybody else in the family is out in the fields, Jerry Lee would get to play the piano eight, eight hours a day. So this is a talent that was so dramatic and noticeable in a very musical family. I mean, his sister was a performer and his cousins were performers. Um, but Jerry Lee's talent was so notable that the whole family sort of built itself around his talent and nurtured that talent. And I think, you know, when I was growing up, the the William Faulkner quote, you know, that owed on a Grecian urn is is worth any number of little old ladies. But I think in our current era in 2019, that sort of statement hasn't aged that well, that, that art, I think, was put on this pedestal in the 20th century that art and artists that it doesn't seem to have merited, you know, and, and, and when, when you watch it in this context, post Bill Cosby, I, I think, I think for me, Bill Cosby is the one that really brings home what letting people get away with anything just because they're talented gets you. Yeah, and, and rich and beloved and, and everything else. Yeah. And, and, you know, it allows people to get away with being real monsters, you know, and, and uh, Jerry Lee has left a just a wake of havoc and destruction in his path. But he's also made millions of people happy with his music. And so, you know, uh, that's what we're wrestling with here. It's it's it's, it's a difficult one. But um, let's For talk. Sure. About I prefer music. my artists. I prefer my artists to damage themselves. Yeah, you know. rather than than everybody else, and and that's the thing about Jerry Lee. I mean, Nick Tosh's book Hellfire um, really paints a picture of Jerry Lee as a scary dude who surrounded himself yeah. with other scary dudes. And um, when he was in the wilderness in the exile years, he was bearable because he didn't have much money, and and he he was working hard on his music all the time. But once he got back on the country charts and had money and power again the posse he surrounded himself with gets bigger and bigger and he gets scarier and scarier and more ungovernable and eventually paints himself into a corner again and, and, you know, spends the the eighties and nineties basically in showbiz exile had kind of a comeback in the two thousands. Um, you know, but it's still going on. It, it's, it's interesting. I was reading a GQ article from about 10 years ago and he's at least at the point of that article was being caretaken by his daughter. So, you know, this, this family pattern of enabling the talent yeah. who's provided for them, you know, a, a, yeah. a, you know, I don't know what their other economic resources are now, but I know that 
you know, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s when Jerry Lee was growing up, they were dirt poor. So, you know, I'm not in a position to judge. Um, but let's talk about the music on the show. They do a whole lot of shaking going on to open the show uh, from a UK a British telecast in the early 60s. Uh, they play Crazy Arms, uh, his cover of Ray Price, which was his first record for Sun. They do a whole lot of shaking again, but this time off the Steve Allen show, which is one of the just classic um, performances of Jerry Lee's career. Then they do Another Place, Another Time, which is one of uh, his true blue country anthems from the late 60s. And then they, they end with a live version of Crazy Arms. So I do have to kind of ding this one for its musical choices. Um, they... They they underplay you know there's no Milwaukee made a loser out of what made Milwaukee famous made a loser out of me or she even woke me up to say goodbye there's none of that um, and then they duplicate Crazy Arms and a whole lot of shaking so I don't know what what what's your take on the musical choices well I agree that a little more variety would have been great uh, but it was kind of jarring every single time they cut to him singing. I would start to forgive him like right away because I mean, the guy just sings like nobody else and the way he just sits there at the piano and everything is like, he really is a force of nature, like as a performer. Uh, and just when you're really like sick of watching this thing about this guy, they cut to him singing and you're just like, Oh God damn it. This guy, he's good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he was a great talent, and um, you know, I mean, he's it's it's almost like he's perfectly made for people like us to to to, to wrestle with the the meaning of it all. Like, is this is it worth putting up with this guy's bullshit to hear his music? And you know, as a fan or a listener, you know, he never heard me. He never married my my daughter. Or, yeah, you know, um, yeah. and I've enjoyed his music for many years, but. But that feeling, there's always, you know, I, my first exposure to Jerry Lee was in the early 80s when I was, you know, 12 or so. And I was reading um, Richard Ben Kramer's uh, story about the death of God, his fifth or sixth wife, I think his fifth wife. Um, and, and apparently she overdosed on methadone in his, in his bed. But that article really painted a sinister picture of a county government, you know, where Jerry Lee's cousin was the sheriff. And I could have the details wrong. It's been, God, 40 years since I read that article. But, you know, that was, but they definitely didn't investigate this case thoroughly. I mean, they, you know, they, they just buried her and, and moved on. And I also have a lot of questions about his son's death in a swimming pool. Um, and it's, I think an indictment of our society that we have so prioritized talent and money that somebody like Jerry Lee has never had any breaks put on him. No boundaries have been set for this guy. I mean, he's been able to get away with mad mayhem, you know, wife beating, incest, bigamy, you know, I mean, felonious stuff. And, um, yeah, you know, automatic it, firearm play at a party. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, shooting off machine gun, Kelly's machine gun, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and 
I don't know. Do you think the drug abuse is a mitigating factor? I mean, this was a guy who was a full-blown meth head for decades. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's definitely... I mean, the machine gun story is that he had been partying for three days straight when he decided to keep the party going by machine gunning the ceiling to wake everyone up. So I, I don't believe that was the act of a, a sober and reflective Jerry Lee, but, you know, again, it comes back to just this sort of like Teflon, like good old boy status. Like you said, his cousin is, you know, the sheriff. And if not, in cahoots with the sheriff, you know what I mean? It's like, it's more than just the fact that he was talented It's the fact that he was hooked into this sort of, you know, good old boy culture that still existed at that time in the South that, that allowed for and a still kind of guy today. to just do whatever, to do whatever he wants. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, in the second season, when they talk about funk and it's African-American artists, you, you really see how little slack was given to people like James Brown um, and Rick James, and who were very similar uh, people. I mean, you know, both of those guys did get away with a lot of egregious bullshit before they went to prison, but they both went to prison. And, For sure. um, you know, Jerry Lee uh, never darkened a prison door. And, and uh, I mean, he did some jail time, I think, but just overnighters, yeah. not, not. Um, well, and he never built the kind of, he never built the kind of empire that James built either. And if he had, the FBI wouldn't have come and taken it away from him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, Jerry Lee Lewis, after the rock and roll era was over, he was no longer seen as a threat to the greater society. Now, when he was in the full flush of his rock and roll explosion, he very much was a threat to society. And, um, and, you know, if you look at his influence, I mean, you know, this is a guy who John Lennon kissed the soles of his feet. And they talk about that, you know, this is a guy who definitely was planting seeds and spreading the rock and roll virus everywhere he went. So, you know, if, if he thought that rock and roll was, you know, ruining American culture, a threat to American culture. Definitely Jerry Lee Lewis in 1957 would have been high on your list of, of dangerous people. But after that, after he had been, after he was no longer on the cutting edge of culture and, and just became a good old boy and a country entertainer, you know, society, the powers that be, um, no longer wanted to crush him and, and, and enabled him, if anything. So any other thoughts on the music? Uh, you know, it has definitely made me want to go back and spend some time listening to the stuff. I definitely want to explore some of the country records. Uh, there's some, there's something about the way he sings. Like I like the way he plays piano as well, but his voice has just got a certain resonance to it. That is, it's kind of out of control and it's, uh, it, it just grabs you, you know, right in your guts. And, uh, I'm probably going to have to go and like do a little driving around listening to some, some Jerry Lee and then just trying to figure out how I feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've definitely enjoyed uh, Jerry Lee's country records. The, the Chris Heath GQ article I was mentioning earlier, I thought had a good uh, description of, of what the power of those country records. He, he says, if his rock and roll records are the sound of an uncontrolled explosion as it happens, 
His country records are the sound of a man exploding inside. Who knows, for reasons of love or regret or decorum or simply genre, that now is not the time for such an explosion to show himself. And so he sings sad songs as though he is full of an energy and rage that he has the wisdom not to release, though sometimes stray shards of it escape. And that's that's the thing about the country albums, is they really do sound like a penitent Jerry Lee. You can hear the pain of a thwarted talent and the heartbreak of a man who lost his, his oldest son early in childhood. It comes through. I mean, Jerry Lee can express feelings through his music that he probably cannot express any other way. And those country albums are, I mean, it's just solid, solid golden age country music. It's really powerful and beautiful. And, you know, I, mean, I think when we talk about, you know, oh, we, we should burn these records or we shouldn't listen to these records, like a counter argument to that is that, you know, these aren't, we're not doing Jerry Lee a favor when we listen to his music. I mean, it's different if it's like R. Kelly or somebody who actively has an entertainment empire that you're supporting, who's who's unrepentant and still allegedly offending. But with Jerry Lee, I mean, the dude's nearly dead. He's not going to make big money off of my Google Play uh, <laughs> or Spotify, you know, streams. And, yeah. you know, I feel like listening to his music and enjoying his music makes some of the bullshit that he put out in the world worthwhile. I mean, that that's the redemption is, is, is this music and the pleasure uh, it can give people. And also thinking about his story and learning from his story and trying not to do it again. Um, you know, discouraging people from enabling talent to run this wild. But I don't know. I mean, the explosiveness and the power of Jerry Lee's early rock and roll sides is is pretty overwhelming. I mean, um, as much I don't know it, when you really get into a whole lot a lot of shaking going on and and um, great balls of fire. Little Richard is the only one who comes close uh, out of the original rock and rollers uh, to matching to matching him power for power. And I think it was in the old Rolling Stone record guide that they said that the that that even Jerry Lee even had an edge over Little Richard in that he always sang and enunciated perfectly, like a demented choir boy. That was the exact phrase they used, demented choir boy. And so, you know, where Rich, Little Richard might shout, Jerry Lee is always singing, no matter how loud or how raucous or out of control he is, he's always singing and, um, and never really, you know, just shouting. So it's... Uh, I don't know. It's just amazing. It's amazing stuff. And and the footage of him in that period, you know, with the blonde hair falling down on his face and the stools flying through the studios, um, TV studios, uh, it's it's something to be seen, you know. Um, For sure. And I mean, the the hair is incredible. I mean, he looks amazing. Uh, it's it's definitely a rock and roll vision. Uh, but yeah, I definitely give the edge to Richard, but. Uh, but Jerry Lee, like, is singular. Like, he's definitely a force of nature. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, let's let's do the questions. What was your favorite part of the episode? Definitely, I mean, 
I really liked hearing from Myra and, and I felt better that she seemed like she made it out. Okay. Uh, and tarp was just the funniest part. Like the guy never cracks a smile the whole time, but he's hilarious. Yeah. Tarp was definitely my favorite thing. Um, just the sound of his voice is, is, is compelling. And all of his stories are totally compelling. And, uh, yeah, Tarp is definitely the head. And I think I think you're honest, Simpson, when 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 you say that you know, Tarp is the reason they made this episode. I mean, that that is a guy that needed to be documented, and I'm glad they did a great job of that. And and so, what was your favorite song? Because we already, I think we probably already covered that. But Crazy Arms was definitely mine. Yeah, for me, it was a whole lot of shaking, just because you know, it's just so iconic, and you know the way he finishes it up and then just does that real casual little kick with his foot. Like, oh man, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Although I'm still wondering why didn't they not get uh great balls of fire in there, but you know, yeah, for sure. Uh, but I'm not going to complain, you know, cause the two different versions they did, uh, of all of Shaco are quite different. And so what was the funniest part of the episode? There was several tart bits uh, that were all funny. Uh, I mean, he, he, you have to just choose one of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For me, it's, it's just the casual way Tar mentions his, you know, he had to quit the band cause he'd caught that armed robbery charge. If but... I hadn't caught that armed robbery charge in 74, <laughs> I'd still be playing with them today. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but the whole, you know, the burned out tire, the bass player getting shot, you know all of those, yeah. and it's it's sad that the bass player getting shot is funny, but the way Tarp tells it is funny. You know he's like, yeah. The two of them go to talk to Jerry Lee about back pay, and Jerry Lee pulls the gun out, and Tarp's like, <laughs> "I stepped aside from the line of fire because I can tell <laughs> somebody was going to get I shot." I know when not to get shot. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, yeah, I thought break- Linda Gale was pretty funny too. Uh, she, yeah. his little sister, she she had uh, a bit of a a uh, uh, gnarly charm on her too. Yeah, for sure. She was definitely a character and very charismatic as well. It's always the saddest part of the episode. For me, J.W. Brown and just the way he just rolls over on, you know, his daughter and how sad that whole thing is. Like, I just, I have a hard time like countenancing that yeah, yeah. As as a parent, it's hard to fathom what kind of compromise, uh, you know, when you sacrifice up your child on on the altar of money um, and rock and roll. That is a, you know, that's just a, you know, it's not my place to judge, dude. But but I would hope that I would never make that same decision. And then I think I think we've already hinted. Uh, the answer is the big question. Do we like the main character? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I mean, it, and I, you know, I probably would, would have had a different answer in my twenties than I do now. Uh, and it's also a different time now than it was 20 years ago. And yeah, you know, I my thinking has evolved on things and, uh, you know, knowing what I know now, about the way the world works, uh, I just have a hard time like dealing with this guy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the twenties, in my twenties, not in the twenties, um, I, 
you know, I mean, I would go see Gigi Allen play, you know, <laughs> and, and, exactly. and, and, and thought, you know, found that kind of stuff amusing. And I've been to so many funerals since then that it's just not funny, you know? Yeah. And you see the wreckage that out of control lunatics cause in this world to themselves and everybody else. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's hard to forgive Jerry Lee for that. And he's just not a likable guy. I mean, he's, his music is irresistible, but, but he as a person is just a snake. I mean, this guy is scary, scary and dangerous. And, uh, he's a bully. He's a buzzard and he's a bigamist. Yep. (laughs) Three B's. Jerry Lee. (laughs) But, uh, now that we've laid the groundwork, what what are our recommended listening for Jerry Lee? Because you're going to want to spend hours and hours uh, listening to the guy. And that's the thing. <laughs> if, if you love rock and roll, this stuff, and country, this stuff does reward listening. And, and yeah. um, it's so easy to forget, you know. And also, I think, you know, his contributions to American culture are enormous. But then again, so are Bill Cosby's, you know. Um, yeah. And... Uh, you know, in 2019, it's it's all of that stuff is looking um, relatively trivial, um, you know, yep. in context. But for my part, well, you got a great list here of of records that I'm definitely going to be digging into. So why don't you start running them down? Okay, so the so the there's a good set of uh, the original Sun recordings in a two, in two volumes. It's on Google Play. I think it's on Spotify. It was on Spotify last time I looked. Um, and the thing about Jerry Lee's sound recordings is that they start off with a bang and they tail off really fast. There's like an incredibly great EP's worth of of the early stuff. But he was, I mean, even Breathless in High School Confidential that he recorded right around the time of his marriage to Myra, you can tell that the power of whole lot of shaking and great balls of fire is starting to slip through his fingers so there's a, something a little bit forced about those two cuts and then it tails off pretty rapidly after that although it stays interesting and stays good all the way through his cover of, of ray charles is what i say is is quite good um and and some of his you know his hank williams covers uh cold cold heart not not i don't feel like he he pulls it off uh, and I think he would later on, but, but, and, and some of his, um, you know, he does a couple Stephen Foster numbers like old black Joe and, and, uh, take me back to old Virginia. And that stuff's fascinating to me because I'm really interested in, in the, the connections to the, um, oldest, the roots of American music. And, and, you know, Stephen Foster talk about somebody that's out of favor right now. Stephen Foster is way out of favor right now, but, um, I still find that music fascinating and, and the melodies that, uh, and the stories and the pathos of those songs can still come through when you listen. But Live at the Star Club from 1964 with uh, the Nashville teens backing him up is an incredible fucking document. That is, to me, Jerry Lee Lewis's masterpiece. Um, I, I did an episode of this series with Joe Bonanno, who wrote a whole book about that record. And it is an incredible record. It's a collision of the original Sun Records rockabilly dude and Jerry Lee with one of the, not one of the great, the Nashville teens never achieved greatness, but they were really, really solid 
beat players, you know, hardened by by long tours, tenures at the Star Club in Hamburg and, and playing around Britain and, and perfectly capable of backing up Jerry Lee, but just raggedy enough that there's a real feeling of chaos and and you know, it's very much on the edge and the and the recording quality is sterling. It's it's just if you love old time rock and roll, live at the Star Club is one of the absolute foundational documents. And then it's exciting, man. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, man, you should I I totally totally worth diving into and and uh and Jerry Lee's playing on it is incredible and and uh and the band's backing is is really solid. And then the, the, there's a trifecta of country albums he did in 68, 69, 70. Another Place, Another Time. She Still Comes Around, and She Even Woke Me Up to Say Goodbye. Um, those three albums are, are way solid. They all go by way too fast. Um, it's, it's hardcore country from the, the late 60s, early 70s, golden age of country. It's... it's, it's it, Jerry Lee's persona and his talent make it absolutely hardcore country. And it, and it's not, the production on it is pretty minimal. They get out of his way and let the singing and piano playing carry it. And it's just powerful shit. I mean, you can say what you want about him not learning from his mistakes in real life, but musically it's the sound of a chastened wild man. I mean, it, it, it's audible that he's had his wings clipped and that he knows that he is fucked up and that he is really striving to earn the audience's love. And, um, you know, it's powerful shit. I can remember as a kid, uh, hearing, you know, what made Milwaukee famous made a loser out of me on the jukebox at Reg lounge when I was a kid and out with my mom and, and her boyfriend and, you know, I really vividly remember Jerry Lee holding his own. That song was one of the ones that they, that got played every Friday night. Um, and, you know, there was like a couple Lefty Frizzell songs and, and some Hank Sr. that would get played all the time. And Jerry Lee was holding his own, you know, with the titans of country music. So that that was my first exposure to Jerry Lee's music. I didn't even realize it was Jerry Lee until the 90s. Um but that that stuff is powerful, and it and it's 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 widely available now for the first time. You know, before streaming and all this shit, you'd have to get compilation albums, and I think the full albums really um, merit it. the The rest of his '70s stuff, it, it just kind of tails off once again. I mean, this guy's a just a textbook of uh, unfulfilled potential or failure to develop. You know, he he perfects his country formula. And then just wrote it out. You know, he never he never was really capable of growth or, or developing. He's not somebody like Waylon Jennings or, or Willie Nelson who consistently, you know, grew and changed over time. Yeah. He's, he's somebody who had, uh, you know, who found a formula and then just ran it out. So yeah, I think part of that might have been that he wasn't a songwriter. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, he was an interpreter. He could interpret virtually yeah. anything. But yeah, no, he wasn't a songwriter and, and never pretended to be. Um, and it just comes from a very different era, you know, and and, and yeah. uh, pre pre Beals and Bob Dylan. So songwriting was not something that was a priority for him. And also, he was not um, musically adventurous. I mean, he could do anything. And so far as any genre that was around 
in the 50s when he was young, he was very Catholic in his taste and, and absorbed everything and, and was a musical genius and, and could play it back and, and blend it together and make everything Jerry Lee music, you know, whether he was doing a country song or a blues song uh, or a gospel song, it would all end up being a Jerry Lee song by the time he was through with it. But he's not somebody who was compelled to find great musicians to play with or uh, try new genres. He wasn't like Ray Charles where he, you know, wanted to, you know, Ray Charles played with jazz musicians. He made a country album and he played with pop, you know, the full overblown orchestra pop production of the early sixties because he was unceasably adventurous musically. Jerry Lee was not like that. He was very conservative and, um, you know, but for, for a guy who had basically two ruts, he 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 hoed hoed those rows pretty damn good. So, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, yeah, definitely listen to music. And and we talked about this a little bit on the last episode about where this fits into the arc. And and I do think it as the second episode of the series, it is kind of misplaced. I think I think it breaks up the momentum of the Johnny Paycheck as a prequel to the George Jones and Tammy Wynette episodes, which we'll talk about next time. And it doesn't really fit in anywhere else. I think it would have been a good palate cleanser after the George Jones and Tammy Wynette two-parter before we get into the whole Billy Joe Shaver and Waylon uh, trilogy. And so I agree. Um, I would have either put it there or put it at the very end. Yeah, but I think I think that, and and since they did it in both seasons, they end the series with the under undersung performer blaze foley in the case of the country episodes and betty davis and the the funk series so that's definitely something that they are explicitly doing is that they're picking somebody who didn't get enough attention in the past and 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 i think that ending it on a positive note like blaze foley who's um you know somebody that that is basically a martyr you know and and um obviously caused a lot of havoc in his own personal life, but, but was a good person and doing good things to try to help people in his own small way and died for it. Um, it's just uplifting to end on that note. And I think if they had ended on Jerry Lee, that that would have, um, you know, they kind of tucked it away in the second episode and kind of a low profile thing. And so I I would, I would be interested in hearing from Mike judge and the team, uh, on that one, like, their overall thoughts about Jerry Lee and, and the context and looking back at it a couple of years later, if they would have done it the same way, um, yeah. you know, any, any closing thoughts? Well, no, it was definitely, it's been fun to get all this off my chest. <laughs> Cause I've watched this episode a bunch of times here lately. And, uh, you know, I've just gotten more and more angry and, uh, and twisted about it. And it's, it was great to talk about it. And, uh, but also I enjoyed watching it every single time. And I especially enjoyed hearing Jerry sing every time he would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his, his talent was undeniable. And, and, um, you know, I think, I think it's no coincidence that he and, and James Brown were friendly, uh, towards the end. Oh, you know, one thing that we didn't talk about was the whole relationship with Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee's father. Now that, that yeah. vignette, uh, was interesting. I noticed you know, they tell the tale of, of the time that Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee were touring together and they neither guy wanted to 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 uh, be the they both wanted to close the show. 
And yeah, it's a classic yeah. rock and roll story that we've all heard a, a bunch of times, and it was in the movie, yeah, the Great Balls of Fire movie. I forgot about the Dennis Quaid movie. Um, yeah, that's. Um, I think that 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 looking at that movie and then this shows you where animation really saves the day for rock and roll storytelling. Um, yes, because no actor and Dennis Quaid is a fine actor, but you just can't capture that kind of charisma and musical power that Jerry Lee had. Um, but you know, this was the first time I'd heard that story without the N word being dropped at the end where Jerry Lee says, motherfucker. Exactly. exactly. Of, they, they, they whitewashed that big time. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, of course that was the way that their sources told the story. And, but I think in part, I understand why they did it because today, right now, in the context of Black Lives Matter and, and Trump and everything else, we're much more sensitive to that than we were 10, 20 years ago. And I think that's a good thing. But we tend to draw things in a very binary way. And it's more complicated than just that Jerry Lee was racist. I mean, everybody was racist. The South was so racist that, that there was no way to not be racist in that milieu. But Jerry Lee is somebody who grew up side by side, you know, with black sharecroppers and his family was just as poor as the black families, you know, sneaking out to the blues clubs, learning to play the piano at the blues clubs, playing in the blues clubs, playing in the chitlin circuit. And so it's more complicated than just, oh, this guy was racist and a bad guy. I mean, he was, yeah, he was racist, but he was also the kind of racist that played black music, played on bills with black performers. I mean, the real stone racists were not doing that in the 50s. I mean, Jerry Lee was part of um, this rock and roll explosion that that helped integrate, uh, you know, the country. And um, I think... Yeah, well, that, he could, so basically, he could still... He could help integrate pop music while at the same time call Chuck Berry the N-word to his face. Yeah. He was that and, guy. Yeah, he he was, and 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 the bit with his father, you know, threatening to kill Chuck, and and uh, you know, of course, many times when you hear that story, especially the Chuck Berry version of the story, is that Chuck punched him in the face uh, when he said that, <laughs> you know, and then goes on and plays. <laughs> so you know, Chuck Berry was a big, tall, tough dude, and also Chuck Berry's no saint. I mean, you know, uh, oh, you know, fucking. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but but I think it's very telling of the way that poor whites and poor blacks um, in the South interacted that Elmo Lewis, at least in the way they tell this story, you know, one night is chasing Chuck down an alley with a knife and the next morning they're having breakfast together like nothing had happened. I mean, these are people who live side by side and um, got along a lot of the time. You know, and and so it's it's I don't know. It's an interesting thing. And and if you if you if you listen to the Million Dollar Quartet, then that's probably something that that I should put in the recommended listing is is the Legendary Sun outtakes, where you had Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lee Lewis doing an impromptu, you know, gather around the piano and and sing singing along, and and uh, Jerry Lee kind of dominates that set but there's conversations and and they're talking amongst themselves about other musicians and they talk about chuck berry quite a bit and and jerry lee singing his praises um right with the other guys so there's definitely a level of musical respect and admiration um that doesn't come through in this 
documentary because it just focuses on the rivalry um, and a little yeah. bit of the of the conflicted thing. So I just wanted to get that in. Probably should have got that in sooner. But anyway, uh, any final thoughts? Final, final, nope. final thoughts. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Justin. And, uh, and so this is Nate Wilcox, and we've been letting it roll, and we'll be back uh, next week with uh, the George Jones and Tammy Wynette Part 1. sure and subscribe to the let it roll podcast on itunes soundcloud or podomatic and check out our website at let it roll you can also follow us on twitter at let it Rollcast. come back next monday when jesse jarno returns to talk about the grateful dead lsd and his book heads a biography of psychedelic america and be sure to check us out next thursday as nate and justin will be back to talk more tales from the tour bus featuring george jones and tammy wynette tales from the tour bus can be viewed on amazon.com if you subscribe to cinemax It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.